In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brussels. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic brings you all the latest developments in Dublin, Brussels and London. A new season of Brexit Republic, a new monarch, a new Prime Minister. Does that mean a reset in the tortured EU-UK relationship over the Northern Ireland Protocol? We look back over a heady, historic and epoch-ending couple of weeks following the death of Queen Elizabeth coronation of Liz Truss and her meetings with the Taoiseach, President Joe Biden and the Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. We look at the prospects for fresh negotiations on the protocol getting underway, whether the new mood of optimism is well placed and what the landing zone might be. And with Liz Truss having championed the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, we'll assess whether any breakthrough can happen without one side or the other being badly betrayed. But first, Tony, I suppose it has been July since our last podcast, not meaning to make this sound like confession. What sinning has been going on since then? Well, I suppose we should trace it back to the the sins of Chris Pincher, that Tory MP who uh, allegedly sexually assaulted two men at a party. Uh, Boris Johnson then came under pressure uh, because he essentially told fibs about whether he knew this individual had form in this regard. And then it turns out from a senior foreign o- former Foreign Office official that he did ha- know about it, but then had basically sent his ministers out to to lie uh, on his behalf to protect him. And that essentially brought the downfall of Boris Johnson um, after a rather controversial and ill-fated premiership. Although, according to Liz Truss, his successor, he had a, a brilliant and highly successful career as uh, leader of the UK and Conservative Party leader. So Liz Truss then, uh, after a Conservative Party contest that was very long and highly vindictive and poisonous, ended up facing off against Rishi Sunak. And she was the obviously the darling of the Brexiteers and the right wing of the Conservative Party. Um, and obviously was the one preferred by the 160,000 or so largely male, white, uh, ageing members of the Conservative Party who get to vote. Um, And she was duly elected on the 5th of September and made Prime Minister on the 6th of September. And then Queen Elizabeth died on the 8th of September. So uh, a fairly dizzying catalogue of events uh, since we last spoke. And I suppose those events have reconfigured where we're at with the Northern Ireland Protocol. Well, Queen Elizabeth's visit to Ireland was one of those moments that was a step forward in Anglo-Irish relations and I suppose her passing gave the space for all of those things to be recalled. Micheál Martin uh, and indeed President Michael D. Higgins making the trip to pay their respects at her funeral and Micheál Martin had a meeting with Liz Truss in that context. That would seem to kind of take some of the more heady, toxic 
uh, aspects of the relationship in the recent past out of the picture and offer an opportunity for maybe a reset if of nothing else than the personal relationship. Do we know anything of what transpired there or the significance of those meetings? Yes, well, the the meeting itself was very significant in that very few leaders did get a bilateral meeting with Liz Truss on the eve uh, and around the the Queen's funeral. Um, So so that's one thing. Um, And if you consider how bad things had got between Micheál Martin and Boris Johnson, and indeed between the Irish government in general and Liz Truss when she was Foreign Secretary, because don't forget, she's the one who championed the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, which essentially would dismantle the protocol. Uh, it, it was quite a step to try and revive that relationship and, and bridge the gulf that had uh, opened up between Dublin and London on the question of the protocol. And I think the Queen's death did provide a, a sort of an ambient spirit, if you like, of reconciliation and the need for everyone to grasp an opportunity now that had presented itself with uh, a new monarch. And these, these are the words of Maros Shevchevich, uh, the EU's chief negotiator. He talked about a new monarch, a new prime minister, a new era. Uh, let's all grasp the opportunity. Now, the meeting itself uh, between Micheál Martin and Liz Truss took place on Sunday. Um, I think they talked a bit about Ukraine. They talked quite a bit about the need to reset Anglo-Irish relations, given all the uh, bad blood that had gone on in the past number of months. And they talked about the protocol. Um, Now, it seems fairly clear that Liz Truss has said that she wants to have a negotiated outcome to this problem, although she's also said in the House of Commons very early on after she was elected leader that unless the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill was reflected in any final negotiated outcome, uh, then she would go ahead essentially and pull the trigger on the the protocol bill, bring that into law uh, and and start using it to essentially dismantle the protocol and replace it with something else. So while on the one hand people were comforted by the fact that she wanted a negotiated settlement, um, she was at the same time warning again that the protocol bill would would be would make its way and would would become law. Now some Irish officials I spoke to said, well, if she wants a negotiated settlement, let's test her on that, you know, because a negotiation means that you uh, will have to compromise and uh, to make some difficult choices. Now, I understand that she told me, Hall Martin, that she wants the negotiation process to be more political. Uh, she what is of that the mean? view that the, Well, yeah, that, that's, that's the question. She is of the view that the whole thing is too technical, too bureaucratic, that it's kind of that that the bureaucrats in the European Commission have a stranglehold on it and she wants uh, bolts of political lightning to, to break those strangleholds and and for a a political pragmatic process to take over. Um, I think Micheál Martin would have told her that that wasn't the Irish government's view, that this is a technical issue because you're, you're creating a, a regulatory and customs border and those by nature have to be uh, technical um, and not to be cynical about it if bureaucrats get together in a room they can come together with things they can agree on that to the layman are t- to some degree incomprehensible in their language that might mark progress whereas 
politicians take stances, public stances that are aimed at an audience they want to elect them. So they they operate through different dynamics. Yeah, um, and it, and it is unavoidable that this is a, a political and a um, you know a, a technical process. But I, I think I think there's a, there is a point to be made here in in that. This is all about risk and to what extent is the EU prepared to accept a degree of risk when it comes to goods entering Northern Ireland from Great Britain um, and whether that risk is, is enough for them to, to live with uh, if, if it delivers an administrative outcome for the UK that is you know, less onerous than it is at the moment. Right. But the EU's uh, appetite so, for risk has at least till now ostensibly been dictated by how much data they have to be able to monitor that risk. I mean, have we seen any breakthrough on that front with regard to having sight, for example, of the UK's customs information? There has been progress there, Column. Yes, the, 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 the whole principle here is that the EU can see what's coming into Northern Ireland uh, at a data level uh, that it that it should be real-time data so they'll know exactly what's coming in, when it's coming in, and they can see patterns where something might look a bit suspicious. Uh, There might be a spike in a particular category of product coming from a particular source that might raise a few red flags or amber flags. Um, And that's been a long-running sort of issue between the UK and Brussels. And this was agreed back in December 2020 through the Joint Committee uh, but the EU always complained that the UK hadn't delivered this bespoke uh, real-time data provision. Um, and the UK saying, look, we're, we're doing our best and, and we have now developed a um, a system. Now, I, I've had a briefing on this from uh, HMRC and, and UK officials, which does show that they have created a bespoke system which pulls together five separate systems that would be used in the UK and sort of synthesizes that into one system that the EU can look at in virtually real time. I mean, we're talking 15 minutes after a ship leaves a port in Great Britain and heads across the Irish Sea and that you can drag and drop uh, particular aspects of the cargo um, there's all sorts of codes and you can look at uh, patterns that have emerged and what I'm told is that both sides are quite close to get this uh, up and running. The Commission saying we're not there yet, we're, we, we still need to have access to this and we need to be able to use our risk analysis tools to, so that we can uh, have that picture. Um, but Maro Shevchevic has made it quite clear that if that data system is up and running and the EU can see what it needs to see, then it will permit them to take a more flexible approach to risk um, and and to have fewer checks. Now, Maro Shevchevic told the Financial Times in an interview uh, two weeks ago that you could be talking about a handful of lorries a day being checked. Um, and this was picked up uh, as evidence of the EU making a new offer. But in fact, this is essentially what Shevchevic has been saying for quite some time. Remember, we've talked about this before. The EU delivered four position papers last October, and they've said that these are not take it or leave it. These can be uh, these can be developed by both sides to find a landing zone. The UK has said 
these papers don't go far enough uh, and they would they would essentially replace the standstill period which we have at the moment where you know few, very few checks are taking place so they would actually go into reverse so that's why the UK has said that the EU's offer isn't isn't nearly enough but th- those I guess are really the the starting points of, of, of what this negotiation is going to look like now that Liz Truss is Prime Minister and there is a reset that everybody's expecting to get underway. And do we have any sense of what's in the bottom drawer of the EU for, you know, the final compromise? Because any negotiation clearly requires compromise on both sides. Maro Shevchevic has said, look, there is poss- there are possible flexibilities within the current Northern Ireland protocol, but that the protocol itself won't change. But And that's not far enough for the UK. I think Tony Blair, who has been on the Remain side of things and on the side of protecting the Good Friday Agreement, believes the EU has a distance to go on this. So do we have any sight as to what the sort of behind-the-front-line space is on the EU side where there might be grounds for further compromise, if it came to that? Or what would trigger that, I suppose, the progress of the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill is one of those things that the EU views as an act of bad faith. If that was taken off the table, is there anything that would be put on on the EU side in terms of carrot and stick here? Yeah, well, I think think there is a carrot and stick approach in in that the the EU will will sit down with the the UK. Now, I'm told there's going to be a phone call between Maros Shevchevic and James Cleverley, the new Foreign Secretary, next week, possibly as early as Monday. That should kick off a period of technical discussions and then more political ones um i mean the way the way i it, it's been described to me uh, by you know fairly well-placed sources northern ireland can't look like the wild west when it comes to goods coming in and then potentially getting into the single market but it can't look like fort knox either so it's where you get that slider um on the spectrum of of risk and i think that's where the the concessions will be um, I mean, the, the, this gets very, very technical because you get into things like data lines and commodity codes. And I mean, already the the, the, the the EU has said, look, we can cut the number of fields in a customs declaration by 50%. The UK is saying, yeah, but um, the 50% that you've left behind are the most onerous uh, bits of information that traders always complain about as being too expensive too time-consuming and so on. Um, so it's it's whether or not um, the Commission can go further uh, it, it, on that spectrum of, of really cutting back on right. uh, customs formalities. SPS, agri-food products, always a much more difficult sell because that's a very, very sensitive issue for member states, as we've spoken about in the podcast before. Um, but certainly the, the, the no, nobody I've spoken to is showing any ankle on what exactly these concessions will be. I think that'll be a fairly closely guarded secret until these talks get underway. I would say that the idea of getting into uh, discussions on the European Court of Justice, on VAT, competition rules, these are all kind of add-ons that the UK presented after the protocol came into effect through the command paper last year. Um, The the EU regards those as, as a distraction. Let's focus on goods Articles 5 to 10 of the protocol deals with the movement of goods. Let let that be where the, the, the spotlight shines. Okay. 
So just, I mean, you're, you're talking about agri-food and SPS. One of the reasons that closer agreement couldn't be agreed there was the US, the UK leaving itself open to uh, a US trade deal. On our way over to the United States this week, and the United States kind of plays quite a bit of a role in, in, in what we're discussing here today, Liz Truss admitted that there was no real prospect in the short to medium term of uh, a UK-US trade deal, something that the US said even well in advance of the Brexit referendum that a standalone UK wouldn't be front and centre in the queue for, for a trade deal. So A, might that free up the room in Brexit Britain for closer cooperation or a closer agreement maybe to make greater compromise on the SPS front? Uh, and secondly, on the political front, on the Northern Ireland Protocol, uh, in advance of Liz Truss travelling over to the the UN General Assembly in New York, Jake Sullivan, Joe Biden's national security advisor, indicated that Joe Biden would be speaking to her in quite strong terms about the current state of play of UK-EU relations. That would be a good time to hear a bit of him here. And they will talk about Northern Ireland, and the president will communicate his strong view um, that... The Good Friday Agreement, which is the touchstone of peace and stability in Northern Ireland, must be protected, and we must collectively take steps. The U.S., the U.K., the parties in Northern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, uh, to ensure that it is protected. And in that regard, he will encourage the U.K. and the European Union to work out an effective outcome that ensures there is no threat to the fundamental principles of the Good Friday Agreement. And he'll speak in some detail with her uh, about that in the conversation tonight. So I suppose to take the last point first, Tony, that conversation that Joe Biden ultimately did have with Liz Truss, do we know anything about that? Well, certainly um, there were briefings by the UK side and and the American side, and I think the American briefings put more emphasis on what was discussed at the protocol. Now, I've heard from a fairly good source that on the UK side that it was a tough meeting uh, that Joe Biden was uh, letting Liz Truss know in in no uncertain terms about how important the Northern Ireland Protocol was to the Good Friday Agreement and that the UK should uh, go down the negotiation route rather than the unilateral protocol bill route. Um, So my understanding is that it, it was a difficult enough meeting for Liz Truss. Now I think on the point you made earlier before we heard that clip about Liz Truss on her way over to New York disavowing the idea of a uh, a short to medium term win on a trade agreement with the US she was probably making those remarks to neutralise the effect of being told by Joe Biden and it getting out then after the meeting that there would be no quick uh, US-UK trade deal I mean, the, the problem, just going back historically, is that Boris Johnson and the Leave campaign talked up a quick US trade agreement with the UK as one of the big short-term prizes of Brexit. Uh, but of course, we've heard for quite a while now that that was not going to be on the cards. Uh, so it's it's really no surprise that, um, you know, it, it's, it's not on the cards and, and Liz Truss reminded people that it wouldn't be on the cards. The problem is... Okay, if if you're suggesting that maybe because that trade deal will not complicate the prospect of a closer agri-food relationship between Britain and the UK, 
it seems to me very unlikely that the UK will go down the route of uh, an SPS Swiss-style veterinary agreement with the EU uh, for the basic reason that Liz Truss, as a, uh, a hardcore Brexiteer now, is one of her big signature bills this week is scrubbing out all the retained EU law that got dragged into the UK statute books once Brexit happened because uh, so much of, e of UK law, uh, uh, UK regulations in terms of the working time directive, in terms of parental leave, in terms of product safety, all of that was inherited from EU law and that had to be brought into domestic EU law, UK law, because you couldn't suddenly just wipe uh, and vanish uh, you know, 43 years of uh, legislation. So uh, as part of a SOP or a, a prize for the European Research Group, for Eurosceptics and the Tory party, there was this promise to eradicate um, retained EU law. And they've, they've issued a bill on Thursday of this week saying that there would be a sunset clause. All that law had to be wiped off the statute books and replaced by the end of 2023 or in circumstances by the end, other circumstances by the end of 2026. So in that context, I think it's unlikely that the UK would then go for a, uh, a veterinary agreement with the EU where they somehow have to follow EU food safety rules in order to make the protocol a lot easier. Right. And on the political front, I suppose, if you look at the makeup of Liz Truss's cabinet, OK, on, if you're looking at it maybe from a European point of view, there's no David Frost in there. That's, you know, grounds for optimism, perhaps. But there is Jacob Rees-Mogg. Did you get any reaction as to uh, the, the team with which Liz Truss has surrounded herself? Well, I mean, we, we have to remember that Liz Truss is in a weak position because she's really, she really won the leadership thanks to the conservative, ageing, white male members, etc., etc. Uh, but she didn't win an overwhelming endorsement from the parliamentary party. Uh, so she essentially owes the ERG for her position and she's put hardcore Brexiteers uh, into her cabinet, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Suella Braverman as the Home Secretary. Um, Steve Baker as well as Steve Ireland Baker office. in the Northern Ireland office. That raised a lot of eyebrows uh, and Chris Heaton-Harris, you know, a, a very strong Eurosceptic, former MEP, uh, who's now the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. Um, I would say, however, that, you know, people I've spoken to in Dublin have said, look, let's give these people a chance. Um, Chris Heaton-Harris was very measured in the House of Commons when he first spoke about the protocol. Um, and I, I'm, my understanding as well is that Steve Baker will not be getting very close to the protocol in, in his role as Northern Ireland uh, Minister right. of State in the Northern Ireland Although office. Chris Heaton-Harris, I don't think, looked up from his notes very much giving that address in the House of Commons, which would suggest he's very much still in the stage of reading himself into his brief. Yeah, or, or he's being very much sticking to the script. Um, which, Literally, which could well be that, that yes. <laughs> exactly <laughs> that, uh, that that he's been told not you know that that's, th this has to be carefully managed now by Liz Truss. I mean, I, I think it's undoubtedly the case that Liz Truss does not want a major fight with the EU, given all the other domestic problems that she has. Right. Even though she has, you know, so intimately and explicitly associated herself with the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. Uh, it it um, will probably be largely driven from her, by her because she's not long out of the Foreign Office. 
uh, this is the Northern Ireland Protocol bill is something that she's it has been intimately involved with and intimately knows. So a lot of the relations with the European Union, by dint of who she'll be dealing with and what they're dealing with, she'll probably have quite a level of si- oversight of it and take a good deal of interest in it. Yes, I mean that, that's absolutely true. Um, I mean the que- the question is. I mean, there was some speculation as the summer came to an end and, and the leadership campaign, you know, drew drew to its conclusion at the beginning of September that the EU would, would, would not even begin to talk to Liz Truss unless she froze the bill. Um, now, I'm, I'm told that that's not the case, that the bill will continue its way through the House of Lords. There's been a bit of reporting this week on whether the Lords will... Uh, really go to town on the bill and and for, try and force radical amendments. Uh, whether the whether Liz Truss would then be forced to use the Parliament Act to, to to wrench it back from the House of Lords. I mean, my understanding is that the Lords does not want to have a major fight with the government over the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, principally because it does have a democratic deficit, uh, reputational problem. Um, even more so after Boris Johnson put quite a few of his mates, uh, including Yevgeny Lebedev, the the the, the Russian, uh, the the son of the KB, KGB officer, uh, that he put him into the House of Lords. So the Lords is going to be careful about what kind of fights it picks with the government, and I I don't really see the Lords uh, dying on a ditch um, right. uh, in in this one. But but we shall see. But I mean certainly. There are those in the British system who say, look, this protocol bill has a provision that if there's an agreement with the EU, that would supersede any key elements of the of the protocol bill that dismantle the protocol. So there is essentially a chink of light there that, according to UK officials, would permit the protocol bill to come into effect, but mm. not to be used in, in anger, if you like, if both sides can get a deal uh, on the protocol. Right, even if you have to use the James Webb telescope to see that chink of light. Just going back to one of the things we were talking about earlier, the death of the Queen, Emmanuel Macron was sounding very conciliatory talking about her as she, you know, she wasn't, she was just the Queen uh, and, and you know, emphasising how close relations were between the French uh, and the British people on this. So that kind of leaves the space open for, I suppose, Emmanuel Macron getting away from being the, the bête noire of of the British right wing in, in political circles. So does that cool down the temperature for the coming months? And what set pieces will we see politically whereby, you know, around the fringes of meetings about Ukraine and that kind of thing, in a way that European Council meetings might have functioned in the past? Are there forums coming up where business could be done around the post-Brexit arrangements and relationships uh, where that's not the main issue at hand. Yeah, well, I mean, there's there's some key dates coming up. Um, like we've mentioned, the end of October uh, for... Um, that's, that's the deadline for the Stormont Executive and Assembly to get back up and running. Uh, if, if it's not up and running by that date, then there has to be elections and they would have to take place in December. So that's one deadline that people are going to be looking at. Um, then there is a key meeting in Prague. It's it's what they're calling the European political community, which is really the creature of Emmanuel Macron, who you mentioned there. Um, 
you know, that that was his way of trying to create a forum that would be a bit more meaningful for those countries that have been languishing for years in the departure lounge of, of joining the European Union, those enlargement uh, accession countries like in the Western Balkans. And now we have obviously Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia, um, so somewhere where there, there's a forum for the whole continental shelf, if you like, to meet, discuss security, energy supplies, the war in Ukraine um, in, in a more meaningful way. Now, when Macron mentioned this in, in his in a speech in May of last year, people thought that this was going to be an alternative to enlargement and that it would be kind of a bit of a... Uh, a bit of a half-hearted version of EU membership where you were never going to get, get into the EU so you could be stuck in this sort of limbo purgatory. Uh, called the European political purgatory. Exactly, yeah. Well, purgatory, you, there's the chance that you might end up in heaven. <laughs> if your family <laughs> prays hard <laughs> enough. <laughs> exactly. Um, anyway, no, it, it, he was at pains then to, to insist that, no, this is not an alternative to accession to the European Union, but a way for like-minded countries to discuss you know, serious issues that, that affect everybody. A, a big question will be, does Liz Truss attend this? Because, you know, the the hardline Brexiteers would say, well, look, this is just going to be a, a, an EU-dominated talking shop. We don't want any part of that. Um, but at the same time, you know, she, she may see the benefit of going there. Now, the last thing I heard about this was that the UK was seeking more information about what this meeting in Prague will look like how's it going to work um but i think it's it's likely that she will attend and that would be a key moment for her to talk to emmanuel macron talk to other eu leaders about what can be done with the protocol and then we're going to have a the the normal eu summit 20th and 21st of october and that i think is where you'll see eu leaders giving a direction to mara shevcevic um not giving him a new mandate, which is what the UK has asked for, but giving him perhaps the flexibility to, shall we say, further interpret the key articles of the protocol on the movement of goods, (laughs) (laughs) if I can put it that way. Right, okay. Okay. Jesuitical much? Yes, yes. There's a distinctly Catholic theme to the whole uh, to, to the whole podcast this week. That's it for me. Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor here in Dublin. And from me, Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brussels. Thanks for listening.